You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, why can't Manchester United see what everyone else can and make some big changes after their record-breaking defeat to Liverpool? Elsewhere, Spurs look just as lost under Nuno Espirito Santo. Watford find a way against Everton. And should Knight sack their manager, Daniel Farker? This is The Game. Welcome back to the Game Podcast. And I've got to say, what an incredible weekend of football in the Premier League. I'm Hugh Wissencroft. Alongside me today, Gregor Robertson, Alison Rudd, Tom Clark, and to discuss events at Old Trafford, Paul Hurst. Uh, Alison, I've got to start with you. No, no, no. Wipe that smug smile off your face, okay? I don't want to hear it. I don't want to see it, okay? But do tell me something interesting. Well, to prove how grown up I am... The interesting thing I want to tell you is that I've just been listening to Claire Tomlin talk about her new biography of H.G. Wells, and he nearly died by being kicked on the head in a football match. I didn't know that. This is how you want to start. This is how you want to start, Alison. This is how you want to start, yeah? Okay. Starting so friendly. I know, I know, I know. She's basically saying (laughs) to me, it could be worse. You could have been killed by getting kicked in the head. At least you're still alive. Yeah, do you know what? It's a silver lining, Alison. I'll, I'll take it as that. Thank you so much. Liverpool. There's no record of whether the guy who kicked him in the head was shown a yellow or a red. They did, <laughs> I don't think they existed in those days. Uh, Liverpool, as you can probably tell from um, Alison's tone, um, delighted their fans today with their biggest ever win away at Manchester United. Of course, you know by now... It was remarkable. A 5-0 win away from home. Mo Salah becoming the first opposition player to get a hat-trick at Old Trafford since the Premier League started. I'm going to start with Paul Hurst, who was at the game, of course. Let's start with Liverpool. How good were they? Were they as good, Paul, as the scoreline suggested? I didn't think they were amazing, to be honest. I, I thought, I wrote in my article this morning that it was a 7 out of 10 performance from Liverpool which is probably the most embarrassing thing for Man United. You know, if Liverpool sort of eased off in the second half, he could have easily been 10. You know, it was, it was that bad. And I thought Salah was obviously electric, you know, and Cato had a, a fantastic game as well. But he really could have been, you know, so much worse for United. They were just just completely opened up at the back so easily. And it was just like a, just a horrible, hor- horrible day for Oli. I mean, I had, you know, I did, did feel sorry for the guy, you know, 10 minutes into the second half, he's got, um, he's got a Liverpool fan singing, you know, Ollie must stay and Ollie's at the wheel. And he just went on for about 10 minutes. And that must have been pretty, um, pretty hard for him to take. But, you know, this, this is what happens when you're Man United manager. If you lose five deal at home at Liverpool, you're going to get some stick, aren't you? So uh, in that respect, it was, it was fully deserved because they were so poor. Alison is grinning ear to ear. So if I switch the video off, um, I, th- I hope you'll all understand. Okay, I can't, <laughs> just, I can't take it anymore. Honestly, I can't. Oh. Um, I can't. I can't even concentrate. Um, Gregor, before I get to Alison's verdict on Liverpool, 
I've got to say, there were moments in the first half that they were a little bit sloppy in possession, gave Manchester United a sniff of goal a couple of times as well, still managed to take all of their chances though and win very, very, very comfortably. But as Paul said, I, I do think if we'd have seen a 10 out of 10 performance from Liverpool, this would have been even more chastening for Manchester United. Yeah, but they didn't need it. That's Hurstie's right. They didn't need to reach those levels. There was just so much space and time and gaps to exploit and calamitous defending to take advantage of. It was just, it was all made pretty easy for them. Liverpool were at it. They were they were sharp. They were playing with pacing and, you know, intent, intensity and intent. But Manchester United made it so easy for them. It was just ridiculous. Some of the, some of the goals you watch back and you just, like, it beggars belief. The first goal, Andy Robertson is closed down by Wan-Bissaka and he ran past Wan-Bissaka and then ran past Lindelof. He didn't get the ball, but he was there as an, op- as an option for the ball to be slid to him by either Salah or Keita. He just ran past both of them and then, like, that, that's about kind of desire, really. Sometimes these, these results, they can be a little bit, they don't necessarily paint the, the right story. It's like they score a couple of late goals maybe and, and it makes it look more comprehensive a win than it was. This is the opposite. It could have been more. And they didn't, as I say, they didn't need to step up a gear. It was already so comfortable. You know, they could have gone for the jugular. They could have really made it embarrassing. I've looked a little bit disappointed they didn't because Man United deserved it. Alison, you've been keen on the ratings of late. Rate Liverpool for us. I'd go higher than seven, Paul, I think. Um, I, what happened was... I think it would have been eight or nine nil had not um, <laughs> Nab- had not Naby Kate have been injured, and the players didn't know how badly he was injured. He was this is the um, Pogba challenge. So he went off on a stretcher, and I honestly think at that point it was five nil. And at that point, the players thought, well, if we if we keep on playing the way we're playing, they're gonna they're gonna they were out of control at that moment. Manchester United, we're gonna have a few more broken legs, you know, poor tackles. It, what's the point of going to war when you've you've already won the battle you need to win? So I think it was a sort of subconscious, maybe, maybe I don't know if Klopp actually got word to them, but I, I felt there was a general feeling that there's just no point taunting this inept team who've, who've lost control, and, and I mean visibly lost control because... Pogba came off the bench. He didn't come off the bench to do that, did he? He came off the bench and was frustrated and angry and it was it was a mess. So I think they probably did the right thing, Liverpool, in just, just maintaining that sort of slower level of possession football. And it was like just seeing it out, making sure nothing else terrible happened. Otherwise, I'd, I'd be slightly worried that Liverpool don't do well against 10 men this season. The same thing happened against Chelsea. It was pass, 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 get nowhere. I think that's the reason it wasn't um, a ten out of ten performance, was because, as as, as Greg said, there was no, there was no point, and they risked they risked United getting even more aggressive. I think it's just a natural reaction too. You I mean you're five 0 up, you don't need to, and and they could have actually conceded. You know, Ronaldo was nar- narrowly offside. McTominay had a back post header, which he some like fifty pence headed to the wrong <laughs> like, the wrong direction. They got a little bit sloppy, but look, we're talking about why Liverpool didn't win 8 or 9-0 rather than 5-0. It's like, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> Jürgen Klopp also said after the game that he did, the conversation at half-time included, let's get out of here without any injuries. So I think when they did see a player stretch it off, I think it would have hit them even more. The managers told us, just keep it a little bit tight and safe. Um, and so they did, they did go into their shell a little bit. But as we've all said, 
they didn't need it. Um, look, finally on Liverpool, because I think they were, they were Liverpool. They were Liverpool. They are a great side. They played well in, in a lot of parts of the game and they, they rightly deserved a, a massive win on the afternoon. But Mo Salah, once again, Tom, unbelievable, unstoppable. He's now got 107 goals in 167 Premier League games. Um, he's overtaken Didier Drobber as the highest scoring African in Premier League history as well, which is incredible. Let's be perfectly honest for a player that doesn't play up front. Um, but yeah, a, a hat trick and it looks so easy. Yeah, it did. And I think he's he's struggled against United a few times, Salah, in the past. We mentioned it on the preview show that he's had some good battles with Luke Shaw over the years. But I think that was a damning thing for United that going into this game, nearly everyone I know had Mo Salah as captain in fantasy football. Because we just thought, hey, I mean, this guy. I'm an idiot. You yeah, know. well, I mean, sorry, sorry <laughs> to run that. Jamie against Brentford, obviously. You know, oh, he went off at half time <laughs> as well. Nightmare. Uh, well, ever just to make you feel better, I had Mo Salah as captain, so at least that makes you feel better, surely. <laughs> but no, it was extraordinary. I mean, some of those finishes, even the the one for the hat trick, I think running on goal. I actually thought he took too heavy a touch, but he actually makes it look absolutely perfect and flicks it over De Gea who I thought was the only player that came out of it with any credit for Manchester United at all. Got to be considered one of the best players in the world at the moment, if not the best. And he's just making it look so, so easy. And he does it all with a smile as well. He just seems like such a nice lad as well, doesn't he? I, I, yeah, I, that's the only thing that I did appreciate from Liverpool's performance. Uh, Mohamed Salah scoring in front of the, the away end. And he didn't, you know, honestly, a lot of Liverpool players over the years would have milked that moment, you know. And he just sort of smiled up to them and went, Yes, we've won. As if it was a normal three points. <laughs> Norwich at home. You know, it was like, this is sort of a hat trick against Man United away from home. And and the shirt should be off at this point and you should you should really be milking this. Thank you, Mohamed Salah, for not making the afternoon that bit worse. Yeah, he was incredible. He is incredible. Um, and he will continue, I think, on this vein of form right at, at the peak of his powers. And Liverpool looked great and, and underlined once again why they will be right in the conversation for the title. And I think Manchester United underlined once again why they will not be in the conversation for the Premier League title this year. Paul, who is to blame for the issues at Manchester United? Oof. How long have you got? <laughs> Come on. 45 minutes. A pod. 45 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> when he's double that. I mean, it's, you know, it's a bit of everything, isn't it? You know, the manager's to blame. You know, how, how can you send a a team out and uh, that crumbled so easily, so quickly, you know, why is he not kind of drilled a concentrate, you know, drilled his players into, you know, concentrating for such a big match, the players themselves for, you know, for, for switching off. I mean, or, you know, or just kind of, just not being able to cope with pressurised situations. I mean, Luke Shaw and Harry Maguire, you know, look so solid for England in the Euros. And then yesterday, they just look like, you know, like League One players. I mean, that, when they ran into each other, I mean, just thought, you know, how how can they do that? Now, how can a coordinated, you know, defence do that? I mean, it's just such a, it was really kind of like amateur at times. And I don't know how you can lose that kind of professional elite kind of mentality overnight, you know, just by a flick of a, a blow of a whistle, you know, you just, you just lost it straight away. Yes, yeah, so, you could go, you know, higher than that. You know, the the boards, you know, why are they, you know, have they bought a player that they didn't really need in Ronaldo, who is obviously very good at scoring goals, but just jogs around and doesn't press. He, he, you've got to remember that the last two and a half years, Solskjaer and his coaches have started building a team that he's built to press. You know, that was one of their, 
their biggest, you know, biggest kind of attributes and they did press and they were high energy up the pitch. But now they, they've lost that. They've had to kind of start from from scratch again because Ronaldo just doesn't doesn't press. He's, he's not made a tackle this season. I think it's one interception he's made in the whole season. I just don't know how he can how he can live with that. And then obviously the, the big kind of the big hole in central midfield has not been addressed. So, you know, whenever United come up against anyone decent, they just pass pass through them. So you know, there's it's everywhere. You know, players, coaches, coaching staff, board. It's it's a real kind of it's a real mess of a football club at the moment. But you know, Solskjaer is getting all of the stick, don't you, Paul? Because even with all of those other factors going on, the team is is way below where it should be with the group of players that they've put together. Some saying it's time for him to go. What do you think? I don't think they they're into making kind of rash decisions based on one match. But I, I just don't whoa, know. Whoa, 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 Paul! One match, one <laughs> match. Did you watch the game against Atalanta and Villarreal and Leicester and Aston Villa and Wolves and West Ham? Didn't they beat Villarreal? Didn't they beat um, Atalanta? They're top of their Champions League group. Have you not? Have you not looked at that table? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Tell the truth, Paul, who deserved to win those matches? Atalanta and Villarreal could have had four in the first half at Old Trafford. So this result this weekend was coming. The only people that didn't see this result coming seemed to be Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and his coaching staff who approached the game in the same way they approached all the others in which they'd been outplayed. It is coming to that stage now where he's, he's trying to defend the indefensible in it, really. So it is... Um you're Ollie in. You can say it, Paul. It's all right. <laughs> I just want easy night. <laughs> but no, honestly, though, seriously, if he's if you're Man United manager, you lose five 0 at home to Liverpool. You your questions have got to be asked about your your position, your suitability to the job. You know, it can't it can't always be. And I was being flipping about the Atlanta and Villarreal. That they did deserve. They didn't deserve to win them. I completely agree with you. They can't. They have such little control over football matches. It is just almost embarrassing really you can't Ollie always says oh you know we do it the hard way so like, don't do it the hard way you don't have to do it the hard way you can you can just you know take control of the game instead I was in Bruges for the Man City match last week and it's quite a you know quite a good atmosphere kind of you know all the fans were on, on the on City's back as soon as they came out and they just they just passed the ball for the first 10 minutes just took the sting out of the game just you know, just, just easy like that and I and United just don't seem to have the ability to do that. They've got to implode to actually spring into life. And that is just not a long-term approach to football, is it? You can't win trophies based on that theory. So he's got to start, United's got to start imposing themselves on games. They can't continue to, to, to go behind. I think, you know, I think they've gone behind seven times this season. It's just not on that, is it? You can't really, you're not a team that is, is going to win major honours by always having to come from behind. You know, the Man United DNA, etc. You know, also part of the DNA is, is winning things. You're not going to win trophies by constantly having to, to you know, pick yourself up off the off the floor. It's um, it's a kind of a stressful experience watching Man United at the moment, even if you're not a fan. I tend to agree with you on that. Um, <laughs> I've, lost, United. I've lost half my hair in the last, you know, last couple of months. I didn't have much anyway, but now it's all gone, basically. It's grey all over me, grey all over me. I just wondered, Paul, is there a, is there a case for saying, because Solskjaer's in charge and he is a former player and as publicly stated, he, he hopes he's learned the art of management from Ferguson and he is 
trying to replicate the past? Is it not slightly worrying that his backroom staff have a lot of that living in the past element to them, Mike Phelan and Michael Carrick? I mean, these are people looking backwards, not forwards. There's a lack of vitality there. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I, I think this is this is one of the problems that I know that Jose Mourinho and the people around him complained about when they got to United. They said they were, you know, they were always looking backwards and he'd walk through the through the um, trading centre and they'd be like, you know, murals of Brian Robson and George Best on the wall. And he, he, he'd say, well, well, why haven't we got one of Marcus Rashford on the wall? You know, why you know, why is it always we have to look 20, 30 years more back? Sometimes I just think, yeah, it really kind of holds them back that, you know, they're always kind of pining for the past when they're not looking to the future. And yeah, you're right. I've, other than... Kieran McKenna, who was brought in, you know, it was obviously a lot younger. All the coaching staff are, you know, United old boys, aren't they? They're feeling uh, and Michael Carrick, which obviously they've got experience as well. But sometimes I just think that United could do with a, a completely fresh look at it. You know, get someone in who's comp- who has no history with the club and just start again. But obviously, you know, that's that could end up being another, you know, six, seven, eight year projects. And we know in football that that just doesn't happen now, does it? So. It is a problem that they've got, but it's, it's that DNA, you know, that, that that kind of link with the past is something that the Glazers are completely enchanted with. You know, they, they always look at that and think, all oh, right, yeah, that's that's a good idea. We'll, we'll, you know, we want that as well. So I think they believe that having these old faces around kind of helps that. You know, I, if it continues like this, then I think, yeah, a completely fresh look, um, you know, a new manager, new new coaching staff would, would help United for sure. That just makes you feel that as long as the Glazers own Manchester United, they're they're stuck in this this kind of level of mediocrity because they don't that you know that hankering for the past. You know they bought a club and it was on a, it was on the slide. They helped it slide, uh, and so they look to what the glory days were. That just betrays a lack of wit or sort of intelligence about how to run a modern football club, and we're seeing it. That's the evidence of it. So you're stuck in this sort of middle ground of. Averageness. It's important to say that, like Solskjaer, and people have said this, Solskjaer, the level at which we're measuring him is the three best coaches in the world, really, and you are in European football certainly. He's not. He's not. He's never going to reach that level. But I, I also look around. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure who is. Not if you want to ha- continue with a sort of as uh, as Paul's saying, some like Manchester United DNA. You know, people talking about Antonio Conte and stuff. It just that just be tearing up and starting again. It's now got to the point where like Solskjaer is. It's like a punchline. He's like, it can't be allowed to go on any longer. It's just, it's it's now embarrassing for, for Manchester United and it's, it shouldn't have been allowed to get to this point. I just like Solskjaer off no end, as we've all heard for a long while now in terms of his coaching ability. And our good friend Johnny Northcroft has often defended him for and said, you know, that's not what he is as a Manchester United manager. He's there to kind of renew the spirit of this team, bring through players like Mason Greenwood and kind of get them infused and get them motivated. And, you know, maybe someone else is doing the coaching, probably not based on performances lately. But what struck me most yesterday was that I found myself looking at the players and wondering whether they were playing for him, whether they were fully motivated. Shocking, really. I mean, Maguire... And sure, obviously, Hurst, you've mentioned already. But like Ronaldo, you know, you're talking about a guy who's like elite level stropping about, probably should have been sent off, let's be honest, for kicking out at the Liverpool player on the floor. Pogba comes on, gives away the ball, goes in over the top completely. I know Alisson's saying, yeah, he's motivated, he's angry. But also, you know, this is a guy who's won a World Cup. Like, 
where's your experience? And I found myself turning into a bit of like Roy Keane here when he says, I don't need a manager to motivate me to play against Liverpool. Like those players didn't look like up for that game at all. And when they went 1-0 down, they completely disappeared. So, Hursty, you've watched them a lot. Is that the most telling thing that Solskjaer's lost that? You know, I, I would argue he never had the coaching ability in the first place, but he seems to have lost that aura with the players. It's, um, I say, it does, it does beg a belief that, you know, like you say, elite sportsmen like Cristiano Ronaldo can look pretty average all of a sudden. And when it comes to the coaching, I, I don't think Solskjaer is that involved, to be honest. He's, he's quite, he's, not that that's an excuse, obviously, you know, he's, you know, he carries the can, you know, he's, he's the manager at the end of the day. But in terms of like day to day stuff, I just think he, pretty much, you know, stands on the sidelines and lets uh, Kieran McKenna and, and um, Michael Carrick sort of get on with it. But like I said, that doesn't excuse him from any blame. He knows that he's he's the fall guy. If, if he continues going like this, then, then he's going to get the he's going to get the sack, isn't he? So, um, like as, as we were saying earlier, Conte would be, you know, if you brought him in, you'd have to, you know, he'd be buying, you know, 33-year-old wing-backs from, you know, from Italy, wouldn't he? And, and that is completely different to what they've got now. So if they did get rid of him, they'd have to find someone who is kind of, who looks at sort of young players and then likes to play attacking football and is not in it for the short term. And that, that's, they're not easy, easy managers to find. I just think there's so many contradictions about Manchester United. I think, you know, there's, there's like this kind of narrative as well that, the squad is good enough to be challenging for the Premier League. I think that's utter nonsense. I think this back four, you know, Hurstie saying, well, how can you, how can Maguire and Shaw lose that elite mentality? They don't have it. They don't have it. None of their back four have that mentality. Ronaldo does. And I know he's been made to look like he's average and he's aging in years. Fernandez does because he's got, like, you know, he's got devilment and he's got the quality, but you still see him waving his arms around now. Apart from that, they don't have it. You looked at Maguire in his interview after the game, you think this is Man United's captain. I know you could sound, you can be accused of being a dinosaur now for talking about leadership. You know, everybody harks back to, oh, blooming hell. Leadership just masks a lack of, like, a, a, a coherent system. That's an easy get out. It's true. Harry Maguire is Manchester United's captain. Harry Maguire is not a leader. It was an interview with a guy who was stood at a bus stop and he had just had a car go by and, and spray a puddle, Slash. right? Do you know one of those huge puddles? And he's just been drenched and someone had run up to him with a microphone and went, how do you feel about that? And he went, well, you know, it, that wasn't great, was it? It was, it was appalling. It was appalling. That's, and that's the, that's the captain of Manchester United. So all I'm saying is that says a lot about the rest of the squad. And if, you could go on, like, you could go through that, that, that whole back four. As I say, they don't, they don't have that. They don't have anyone with that kind of mentality, I don't think. And it's not like, it's not black and white either. Luke Shaw's been magnificent for a long time. Harry Maguire has had really long periods of, like, of good, good form. But maintaining it and doing it all the time is what the very, very best do. And Man United don't have enough of those players. So but then I would flip it on the other side quickly and just say, you know, have you ever heard the word pressing used so much? Like, it's not the only way to play football. It's not, so, you know, yes, the best teams in, in the Premier League, the best teams in Europe, that is the way that they're playing now. But that doesn't mean it's the only way to, of playing football. And they are, there's a reason why they're the best coaches. Except for Chelsea. Chelsea aren't really a pressing team. Well, they, 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 they can marry it. But you, you even look at other teams in the Premier League now. You look at Leicester, you look at West Ham, you look at Brentford. They can mix it up. You, 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 this is what, so it illuminates Solskjaer's shortcomings but then uh, another thing I would say is another contradiction is could you just imagine what like Greenwood 
or Rashford would look like in in a team coached by Klopp. Like these players, there are there is more in these in these players as well. That's what you think. So it's not just some of them aren't aren't way up to it. There's some of them I think who are their their careers are drifting because of the team they're playing in. If they were playing in a better team, I think they could reach high, far higher levels. So you know there are so many there's so many kind of moving parts to this. I think, but ultimately, Solskjaer shouldn't shouldn't be the manager of Manchester United. Another factor, I think, is. I can't quite believe I'm saying this, but I think it's true. I think Solskjaer was believing in magic. He he said beforehand, okay, first of all, let me explain why I'm saying this. I can believe you're he, saying it, but go ahead. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, 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 he fielded the same lineup as he did against Atalanta, which is like, why would you do that when it, it started so poorly? And then he said before kickoff, the crowd you get at Old Trafford for a game against Liverpool gives the players an extra 10%. So he's clearly thinking, I can have the same team, we get an extra 10% out of them because the crowd are up for it. And then he decides, because they're at home against Liverpool, these are things he said, I'm not putting words in his mouth, they had a duty to entertain. So what they should have done was be incredibly defensive, almost deferential, and catch Liverpool on the break. Liverpool are so frustrated when teams back off. Instead, they tried something they don't try very often. There were people now and again pressing, they left spaces, they let Liverpool play their game. So, so none of this makes any sense at all. Oh, and yeah, I think he also believes in the aura of Cristiano Ronaldo. Again, that's an intangible, that's a, you know, that's an, you know, a, an imaginary thing. It's it can work. It can't work. It's magic. So he, all the things he put his faith in were things that aren't real. So he must believe in magic. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Alison Rudd. Yes, I see what you mean about that, Gregor. I just wanted to ask you something tactical about Manchester United because a lot of the stuff that we've said is about motivation and about um, confidence and about approach to the game. A lot of people criticising the idea that Fred and McTominay play in midfield for Manchester United, especially against Liverpool's midfield. Does the midfield really matter when the team looks so poorly coached in terms of what they're meant to be doing? If you don't know your job, if no one in the eleven really knows what their job is, does it matter who gets picked in the individual positions? No. I mean, they've, they've, they've been hung out to dry in recent weeks, I think, because it's so much space around them. It's like they must just feel like they're, I don't know, swimming in this vast ocean and watching all these sharks <laughs> ducking and weaving around them because <laughs> they, they're just like, they look like they were lost yesterday. And that, that is to do with the team that they're playing in. We've seen that pairing at least, at least like form a solid foundation for United in, in some games. But at the moment, they're just, they look like they're, they're caught between wanting to, as, as Solskjaer was saying afterwards, you know, Man United should be on the front foot at home. They're caught between wanting to do that against one of the, the best teams in Europe and fear. I think they're they're scared. The, the back four in particular are scared to push up. There's so much passive defending. Even even if they were they were sometimes they were looking like they were closing down or you know pressing that that blooming word that keeps getting thrown around. It was just to get close. It was never to go and make a tackle. That's the difference between them and Liverpool and the, the best. They do it to go and win the ball. And so many times Liverpool did that. And that's about that's about partly about knowing that you've got support behind you. If you go to if you go to press or to close someone down, you know that the next guy's with you. And the next guy after that. Part of it's about that kind of confidence and knowledge that, that you have support. And part of it is about bravery. And I think Manchester United lack both. Just very briefly on those two in midfield, 
what's fascinating watching Manchester United in recent weeks and probably over a long while is that well, I've had this conversation before with Alison and Gregor in modern football about formations and you know you lay them out on a little pitch on a little graphic 4-2-3-1 and in reality quite a lot of the time when you watch a match that isn't what happens and particularly in defensive situations teams drop back you used to have Mourinho's United playing against Liverpool and they'd be 6-3-1 in defensive situations on the edge of the box camped out like that Man United it's like a computer game they just do 4-2-3-1 across the pitch the wingers don't drop back in to help defend Fernandez doesn't drop back into the pocket to pick anyone up it's just Fred and McTominay and then you have the back four desperately scampering back and that's it. And like no one seems to be ta- either taking responsibility as an individual or there's no coaching in place to say wh- how that attacking system where you've desperately tried to get four attacking players in, how that attacking system then morphs back into any kind of defensive shape. And that is, as Gregor says, why leaves poor old Fred and McTominay in oceans and oceans of space with loads of runners to pick up. Just finally on this, Paul, the future for, for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, I think most people would concede he's going to stay at least until the end of the season. Do you see any anything happening in the next few weeks that would change that? I, I think it would have to be a, a terrible run. You know, a, f- a few matches like this uh, consecutively for them to, to think about making a change. They've invested a lot of, a lot of time, effort and money in, in, in Solskjaer. And that, like I said earlier, they are completely wedded to this idea of the United way. And they think that he encapsulates that more than anyone else. Um, always come back to when they appointed him, the board set three kind of conditions for him to, to three boxes to tick, basically. One was playing attacking football, the other was was bringing young players through, and the, the third one was was winning winning trophies or challenging for trophies, and you know the, the third one's not there, is it? You'll always play, you'll always play the young kids, uh, but they're not challenging for trophies. And you know, let's be honest, sometimes some of the football is a bit kind of is a bit boring. Sometimes it's not, you know, we're not talking Van Gaal here era here, but it's not as scintillating as it used to be under Solskjaer. So. If you lose two, you know, two of those boxes are kind of unticked, then he's he's looking a bit on on kind of shaky ground. But you know, I'd, I'd give it a, a kind of few weeks before I think they'd, they'd consider making any change. Paul Hurst, thank you so much for joining us on the game podcast to have a look at what was a remarkable game at Old Trafford. Liverpool winning 5-0 away from home, their biggest ever win against their huge rivals, Manchester United, away from home as well. But it was just a remarkable afternoon, really. Up next, we're going to be talking about London derby between Spurs and West Ham. We'll talk about Watford's win over Everton and Chelsea's huge win over Norwich City. But remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, rate us, leave us a review, and of course, make sure you're subscribed. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Spurs have now lost all four of their London derbies in the Premier League this season after a 1-0 defeat at West Ham, who move up to fourth in the table. Good start from them. Spurs had 60% possession in the second half, but they only managed nine touches in the opposition box. It just isn't clicking for their manager, Nuno Espirito Santo. Uh, Gregor, why can't Spurs get their attack going at the moment? Um, I think there's probably quite a lot of reasons for that. I think Harry Kane's, despite you know the brief signs of, uh, of a bit of a resurgence, um, he's still in a bit of a malaise, I think. I think there's just a lot of... It's too slow. A lot of Tottenham's play is too slow. Not incisive enough. They, as you say, they dominate possession. They're just lacking that final bit of, of kind of cutting edge, I think. When you're relying on, on Dombele for your, to be your kind of chief creative force as well, he's such an enigma. It's kind of... It's, it's exasperating. Sometimes he's... Sometimes he does things that you think are majestic with the football at his feet. And then there's fast swathes of the game where he's anonymous or almost a liability. Hoiberg and Skip, he kind of seems finally to have settled on that as a foundation. But in front of that, very few of the players seem to be in, in, in good form. The play is just too slow. I think West Ham, I spoke about West Ham just a moment ago about how they can kind of mix their play up and that they can be a mid-block but still energetic and, and close people down. Or they can sit really deep and soak up pressure. And they did that for a large swathes of the second half, but always looked a threat on the break with Antonio. So I think, you know, the contrast for me, for me in that game was that West Ham looked like a team that they know their jobs, they know their strengths, they look well balanced. And Tottenham looked like a team that were pretty pedestrian and they're not getting anywhere near the best from their, from their best players. Tottenham uh, uh, took a long time to make substitutions, attacking substitutions, really, that they needed. Uh, La Celso and Hill came on with six minutes left in the game, you know, training by a goal to nil away from home. They've now got four defeats in the last six games as well. Since we last spoke, they were beaten by the Tessarnem in the Europa Conference League on Thursday with their second choice team. They now sit third in the Europa Conference League group halfway through. Uh, Nuno Espirito Santo, the manager, is, is looking more and more like a poor fit at Tottenham to me anyway what do you think Alison? Yeah I'm, I'm trying to be contrary and say no he's doing a fantastic job but I I, uh, <laughs> I can't uh, I thought it was really peculiar actually that he every single player at the London Stadium had been allowed to rest that you know they'd, they'd had nothing to do with the Conference League defeat and that's careful planning isn't it that's 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 Nuno's decision he's decided they're gonna I mean if you do that then the team that's had the rest and you know they've been spoiled a bit haven't they they've been told they're they're the best team you're the boys I like you're my favorites you're you're the Premier League elite and you've had a nice fish and chip supper and you've been able to watch Netflix and you can go out you can go out and show everyone why I think you're you're my favorites and they don't and I think that's I think that is really significant because it means they're not really feeling the love he hopes they should be feeling. There's there's a disconnect there. 
I, I mean, it's odd. Don't you think it's odd? I mean, Gregor, I don't know. Have you ever, have you ever been in a situation where it's been made clear to you that the manager thinks you're first choice in your position and he'll even God indulge no. you? D- indulge <laughs> you. <laughs> Don't you think it's supposed to make them come out full of energy and ego and arrogance and strut their stuff? And instead they acted like the team that had lost midweek. It was very strange, the lack of reaction to that tactic from their manager. Yeah, I mean, it's, you're getting deep into some <laughs> the psychology of whether, you know, it's also strange if if you were if you were on the other side and you were a player who was picked for the the game that no one really wanted to be a part of. You often see the reaction is there's no reaction from those players as well because you know you're part of the the B team. But you're but right, they weren't you know? there. The B team weren't there. So what's the excuse? Watching this weekend's football, as I said, I've just never heard people talk about about plan and there were two words for having a plan and pressing. It's like all 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 you all you want to see from your team is energy. And structure, and West Ham have that. No matter what you say about the way the way they play, as I say, it, they can mix it up. They have energy, lots of energy and intensity and desire. You see it, and they they have a structure. They look like they're they're well drilled and coached, and they know whatever way they go out, whether they're playing three at the back, four at the back, two up front, one up front. They know what they're doing. A lot, <laughs> as far as a little like Manchester United, they don't really look like they've got to grips with what Nuno wants them to do yet. Certainly in possession. I think without the ball, I, I think I think there's some question marks already about their their summer signings too. I mean, this is supposed to be a a summer where they brought in a you know a new director of football or a new direction, and uh, they spent a good bit of money. Hill doesn't seem to be getting much of a look in. I think Emerson Royal, the, the right back, not the one. Romero, really, centre back. Well, he had a he had a tough time yesterday against Antonio. Really tough time. You know he's 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 pretty highly regarded, and and you have to give some of these players time to to acclimatise the Premier League. I'm, I think out of all of them, he's probably got the most potential. But there's things you see in the others that you think they're not up to the level, and I, I maintain that Regulon is not either. There's holes in their team still, despite them spending a lot of money in the summer. But overlooking all of that, they just don't look like they've got to grips with how Nuno wants them to play, and if they, it's just all so slow and pedestrian. Credit to West Ham though, Tom. Uh, they look great in terms of finishing at least in the top six this season, you know, showing it wasn't a one-off last year. So well organised, as has already been mentioned. And Mikel Antonio seems to be getting even better in terms of leading that line. Loads of plaudits from his manager, David Moyes. Yeah, I think we'll probably have quite a lot of... Maybe, maybe we won't because West Ham fans are a confident bunch at times when things are going well. But let's be honest, beating Tottenham, beating Tottenham at home used to be kind of you know, considered a bit of a kind of cup game, a bit of a cup win. But actually, as we were saying before, no surprise that Liverpool thrashed Man United. Not that big a surprise that West Ham beat Tottenham. And they, as Greg has already said, they looked so comfortable, looked like they could have played another half an hour and wouldn't have conceded. We're talking a lot about midfield areas today, talking about Manchester United's, about Tottenham's. When you look at West Ham's, to have Suchek, Rice, and a player that I find myself fascinated by Pablo Fornells who just kind of you know a little bit maligned a little bit unsure of what he role he was what role he had sorry but under David Moyes seems to become this kind of slightly tenacious front foot midfielder who offers something a bit going forward and I thought it was interesting looking at if you look at midfielders for minutes played this season those three are in the top 10 in the Premier League of all teams so to have, for West Ham to have those three 
as certainties. You talk about a spine of a team behind Antonio. I think that's absolutely vital to their success. And yeah, they were brilliant. You know, I, it's when you think about when David Moyes took over, the idea that uh, a year or so on, you'd be saying, well, they look a good bet for the top six. That's remarkable. And they're absolutely flying in the Europa League as well. It's, it's a truly remarkable job. You've got players like Ben Rama and Bowen from the championship as well. It's easy to take for granted what the job he's done there, but it just continually seems, it amazes me slightly, I must be honest. Who knows? Man United could be looking at him in a few weeks' time. You know, David Moyes for the big job uh, once again. Um, let's talk about Everton. They're a team that we think, or at least we thought at the start of the season, after the first couple of games, could really be in the same position as West Ham. Well organised, you know, not not a massive squad, but certainly a squad that knows their their, their role. They didn't look that way this weekend. They led Watford two goals to one after 77 minutes. They ended up losing five goals to two at home as Rafa Benitez, I think, was maybe outthought at the end of that game by Claudio Ranieri in his second match in charge. It was an amazing day as well for the former Everton forward Josh King. He got himself a hat-trick. And I think there was a chance that Ranieri has found what could really work for Watford this season in terms of that speed on the counter-attack. But I think Everton might have missed Abdoulaye Decore big time. Alison, I know you're a, a Liverpool fan. What do you think of Everton's performance, except for the sheer joy of the result? Oh, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't think it's necessary to preface it with that. I know you're a Liverpool <laughs> fan. I, I, uh, if you, if you um, have ever been listening to me over our short relationship, Hugh, <laughs> you, would, you would know I have a soft spot for Everton. And um, the reason I support I like football is down to my granddad who was an Everton fan. So, you know, take that back. I never see any, I have no joy. There is no joy for me in watching Everton struggle really at all. I I take it Um, back. I take it back. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Hugh. Um, I mean, golly. I mean, Paul Joyce writes a really good piece um, in the game today, which is Monday, where he does, he takes most of the blame off of Benitez and just says this is Everton's recent history repeating itself because they've not sorted out um, their problems defensively. Their recruitment and strategy seems to be just too quiet and nondescript. And what's you know what direction are they going in? Also, I think he's spot on, uh, Joyce, and I'm sure most people thought it at the time as soon as you get a result like this that the crowd are going to turn. This is always going to happen because there was a, a significant number of Everton fans who just didn't want a former Liverpool manager in charge. And they were pragmatic enough maybe at the start to think, well, if he can bring Rafa Magic to the table, we'll put up with it. But the minute it's, the minute we're embarrassed, then we're going to turn. I wasn't there, so maybe I shouldn't say it, but I did feel the atmosphere was bleak. Goodison is great when it's rocking and it's one of the worst crowns when it's not. I don't know if it's to do with the architecture or the way the wind blows through it, but it's 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 a tumbleweed sort of place. I don't think it was too shocking that, strangely, I mean, it shouldn't have happened because um, the best stat of the weekend, which which Bill Edgar points out, since 1979, that a, t- a team trailing by two goals as late as the 77th minute go on to win by that margin. It's it's really it's really rare to be trailing so late in a game and to turn it around. So that is, I think, partly down to a lack of personality, character, 
sense of direction on the pitch that if you're winning, you don't let that happen to you. Very strange. And also they were up against a player in King, as you point out, Hugh, had a lot to prove. And of course, King wasn't there when Watford lost too, so badly to Liverpool. And that might have been a slightly different um, performance if they'd had him for that match. So it's not about Rafa, this one. It's about where this sits in the recent decade of Everton's lack of progress, I think. I do think Rafa Benitez said at the end of the game, though, that his side failed to to manage the closing stages very well, which is, I think, evident. Um, But what I think he meant was that I think there was a sense in Goodison Park that they had to beat Watford. We had to win this game because it's Watford. And so they went chasing the game. They went chasing another goal. And that is why they kept getting hit on the counter-attack. You know, it was it was very naive in that way. I think they missed Abdoulaye Decoré as well, massively, the Everton midfield. They conceded 20 shots against a newly promoted side. I mean, come on. The question, Gregor, is the honeymoon over now under Rafa Benitez, given this result? Well, it's, it's going to be a test. I think I said a couple of weeks ago that this this is a group of players that, and her, um, Joycey says this in the, in the game today, that, you know, they've been accused of on a soft underbelly over a consistent period of time, really. The interesting thing was whether Benitez could change that. I personally don't think this is an example of that emerging again, because it was a bit of a freak. There were some howling errors. As Alison said, a lot of goals scored in a short space of time towards the end. And they did crumble a bit, but it was because they were chasing it. They left mad gaps. You know, Alan pushed in, Keane went over to the right and just left a huge gaping hole for King to run into. But now they're going to be tested. It's going to, you know, it's going to be a big test of whether Benitez can somehow get that to change, make that change. I don't know. Because it's undoubtedly, they have had periods, you know, they had a strong period under Ancelotti at the start of last season and then, and then this, you know, this emerged. I think with time, Benitez can, can mould a team that's going to be a bit different because we've seen evidence of that. And even some of the kind of smart signings he's made just changed the attitude and sort of desire of the team, I think. But it's definitely going to be a massive test for them now how they respond to this. I just don't think, I think it was a little bit of a freak, actually. I also thought it was slightly over the top about Josh King. I mean, he was there, you know, as I feel like it was this massive, he's come back to prove the club wrong. He was there for like half a season on a short-term deal. He couldn't get a start. He only played 138 minutes. It's though, not you know, a big he's... deal, is it? He was quite fortunate to get half a season at Everton, I thought. This sounds to me, Hugh, like someone doubling down on an opinion they professed a few weeks ago. Gregor <laughs> <laughs> Robertson, if you're relying on Josh King for goals, you might be in trouble. <laughs> Thanks Did anyone see me. King as he walked it. off the pitch? Reveal that shirt. Have that, Robertson, you Scottish crosser. <laughs> anyone well, see that? that I enjoy that quite a lot. <laughs> I know nothing. Yeah, exactly. Do you feel any sympathy for Rafa Benitez? Very limited spending in the summer. Not the depth of squad that he needs. Not really, no, because I still think they've got a very good squad. And actually, I think this probably was a bit of a freak. I think you're right, Hugh, that they, there was a bit of a, God, this is Watford. What's going on? Let's, let's go hell for leather. Let's go kamikaze. Whereas actually, if they'd been a bit more controlled, they might have been able to get a draw, which obviously wouldn't have been great, but would have been a lot better than the final scoreline. But no, I don't really feel any sympathy for him. I still think he's got a very good squad. You know, we were just talking about West Ham. Is West Ham's squad dramatically better than Everton's? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that it is. Probably quite evenly matched in terms of ability, Premier League experience, stronger in some areas of the pitch. So no, I don't really feel sorry for him. I think this will be a kind of reset on the initial enthusiasm for everyone going oh, Gray, Townsend, such clever signings. They finally got found a way to play, which we were all guilty of. I thought they kind of, they'd, they'd settled on something brilliant. It'll be a bit of a reset for them. I mean, I'm, I'm also, to just say, let's be honest, 
we should give a bit of credit to Watford and Ranieri after that start to then get a win of that nature. It, yes, if it was a blip. Yes, maybe Josh King will never score another goal in the Premier League, uh, according to Gregor. But, you know, it still takes some high level of motivation at the very least to turn around that performance. And I thought it was quite interesting watching Ranieri walk off the pitch behind King, kind of pointing at him as they walked past the Watford fans. You know, that that's that's what Ranieri's going to bring if they're going to have any hope. You know, the hype man, the good vibes. Like that's, <laughs> that, that's what it's going to be. The tactics will be quite basic, be counter-attacking and it'll be good vibes. And that's what, they, that's what they're going to hope for. Tom brought in West Ham as a point of comparison. And I think that's really significant because what, what David Moyes has, which I don't think many people would have ever believed would be possible is um, a full full stadium, amazing atmosphere, crowd are now behind him. And he, that meant against Spurs, he was allowed, that first half was really boring, by the way, West Ham v Spurs. He was allowed for it to be boring because they're behind him now. And that that, allow, that allows you to, to do, you execute your plan perfectly because um, uh, Cresswell is an amazing, I think he's my favorite taker of corner kicks in the Premier League. Every time he takes one, pretty superb. And he was just waiting for that moment. He knows he's got a very reliable poacher from set pieces in Antonio. And the crowd know what the plan is. They don't need to be entertained. They're behind them, whatever. And it's helped, rather than hindered them, their Thursday night football has helped. Sometimes it's not always Thursday anymore, is it? But their their midweek European games have helped them because they're putting on a fantastic show for the crowd. They make you feel like, you know, their European journey matters um, you know, that it, it, it was so different a few years ago at the London Stadium. Everything got booed. No one was happy. There were protests, protests, protests. And overall, the vibe is good. And it's not, I don't think the vibe is that good at Goodison. No, I see exactly what you mean. I think look, a draw and two defeats in the last three games, uh, something I think a little bit more special needs to come from, from um, Everton over the next few games. Massive game for Watford next time out against Southampton as well, because their run after that game Arsenal, Manchester United, Leicester, Chelsea and Manchester City. So I think it's imperative they get three points, but they go into it with a little bit of confidence as well. Arsenal, Man United, two mid-table teams. That's where you've got to be if you're going to get out of relegation trouble. <laughs> sorry, sorry, couldn't help myself. Sorry. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Um, yeah, I'll probably beat Man United, let's be fair. Um, let, let's move on to the biggest win of the weekend. It wasn't Liverpool's. Um, Chelsea winning 7-0 over Norwich at Stamford Bridge. A Mason Mount hat-trick in there as well. It was top versus bottom. Um, and I think there was an ocean of class between the two of them as well. Two points from the nine games so far from Norwich City. Are we looking at the worst Premier League team ever? Alison, I'll, I'll start with you on this one. Well, I was there, so um, I saw it close up. Yes, it was. It was. It was bad because people were laughing, and that's that's not good, is it? I mean, they did. They, it, it, I mean, there were times when they looked like looked awfully like you know that when you go to a game and a team's already been relegated and you think well sometimes they can be quite dangerous can't they because the shackles are off they know they're down they'll probably make life difficult for the team that's going for the title they didn't even have that so they look relegated but they look like they don't care either and that they're already dreaming about their cushy life in the championship I think it's an insult to the concept of parachute payments it's an insult to 
the Premier League, it, I mean, it allows people to make jokes about the Super League, saying, oh, this would never happen in a Super League, would it? A team that just wander around, happy to concede goal after goal. So um, they got loads of plaudits the last time they were in the Premier League because at least they went down playing attractive football and there were individual performances that you could say, oh, well, you know, but someone will buy him because he's he's got pace or Cantwell looks like a little pony. He's cute. Or Pookie, who's going to who's going to poach him? Nobody's nobody's even talking about individuals now. It's ridiculous how bad they are. And I mean, Daniel Fark seems a very very nice guy, but he, he doesn't talk fast and talk about nothing at all. Gregor, worst Premier League team ever. Two points from nine games. There have been three teams on one point at this stage before. I mean, they're threatening to be. I feel sorry for them. I don't mean for like. Norwich is like, I feel sorry for Norwich's fans because... They're all right with it, apparently. No, they're not. No, they're not. The first time they, this happened, they had like something to cling to in that they were balancing the books. They'd invested a lot of money in their infrastructure. The you know There was a bigger picture. That's all been done now. And they spent 60, maybe 70 million quid in the summer. They're worse. And they're being laughed at. Well, there's a lot of things that they, they they should feel very proud about their club, the way that's run the kind of you know self-sustaining football club in a, in a sea of oligarchs and state-owned football clubs. But this is the reality of it. Or, but it's, it shouldn't be. <laughs> that's the thing. They they should be able to compete better than this, despite all those issues, despite all the you know despite the chasm and finances between them and and some of the biggest clubs. Brentford are competing far better than this. You know, Sheffield United when they came up competed far better than this. Any team when they come up competes better than this. There's a big hole now in their in the whole ideology about and also about sticking by Daniel Fark, you know, to come back to to come back up again next season because he's proven he can do that. How long does this go on for? It's like kind of huge kind of peaks and troughs between joy and despair. It's got to be tough being an Orange fan at the moment. So I, I feel sorry for the supporters more than anything actually. Tom, your view on it and, and should Daniel Farker stay as their manager? My view, firstly, on worst team, no, I don't think they are. And I think and hope they will show something of what they're capable of as a team. What makes you think they will? Just because I think they've got good players and a good foundation of a squad that is clearly out of kilter at the minute. You know, we've talked already, Greg has said, all you want to see from your team is structure and intensity. That intensity has been lost at the minute. And that is where I lead on to the second point of maybe they should think about changing Daniel Fark. I was speaking to a colleague who's a Norwich fan this morning and I was interested. I ex- fully expected her to say, no, back Daniel Fark. He's done it before. But she was saying that she's actually in the minority when it comes to sticking by the manager of the fans that she knows. Quite a lot of them want a change. What's interesting is that because of the way the club is run, you can't see them doing a West Brom, for example, and going for a Sam Allardyce type firefighter situation, get us out of this mess you can't see them doing that. So they'll try and find the next Daniel Fark, young up and coming manager, perhaps from Europe, which then becomes incredibly difficult because you have teams like, it was Huddersfield who did that before, after David Wagner left, brought someone in again, the similar mold just didn't work, didn't have the time. So that, that then becomes very difficult, I think. But I do wonder whether they have to look at the manager just because you start to wonder whether that intensity has gone. Alison referenced it. Last time they were in the Premier League, they were great fun. Sometimes it worked, like when they beat Manchester City and we were saying, this is fantastic. Other times they'd get rolled over, but you could always see what they were trying to do. This time in that match against Chelsea, it was pretty bleak. The only thing is, Stuart Webber, the the sporting director, is very closely aligned with 
with Daniel Fark. Daniel Fark just got a new three or four year contract in the summer and Stuart Webber's contract is up in the summer. This could be the, the dawning of the end of this kind of, it was a really, it was a kind of renaissance for Norwich after the, you know, as I say, huge financial losses. They were like a, a typical boom and bust club and they have done things really smartly. So it could be drawn to an end. That's, that's one thing to say. The other is like, they came up on the back of a really well solidified defence in the championship and now they just look hopeless like Grant Hanley has been outstanding for Scotland I have to say but in the Premier League he doesn't seem to be the same player as he was in the championship Gibson you think this was a chance for him to to come step back up to the Premier League he got an England call up not so long ago he's looked way out of his depth Kabak at the start of the game he went to close down Hudson Adoy and then just backed off and Adoy turned and ran at him and it's like what are you doing Sergeant for one of the goals, he just kind of gave up, closing down at the, at the top end of the pitch. And you saw Daniel Fark afterwards, like, with his hands out going, like, what are you doing? So, yeah, it's it's pretty bleak. But there's some bigger, you know, bigger questions, I think, for Norwich. Another, quickly, another one from, from Bill. That, you know, this is how, this is when you know it's bad as a Norwich fan, when even Bill Edgar is laughing at you in the Times. <laughs> in Norwich's past 19, 19 top flight games, they've had more wins sitting in the owner's seats co-owner Michael Wynne-Jones than wins on the pitch <laughs> <laughs> so like they are they are you know it must be tough being an Orange fan just now absolutely I mean it must be Chelsea on the other hand delighted with their 7-0 win cruise to victory it won't be that easy every week but um, a well-deserved win for them at Stamford Bridge. But yeah, big question marks for Norwich City from here on out. Um, listen, that's all we've got time for, unfortunately. But Alison Rudd, Tom Clark, Gregor Robertson, thank you for being with us for the last uh, hour or so. Thank you all for listening as well. Remember, if you enjoy the podcast, rate us, leave us a review. And for more award-winning journalism from The Times and Sunday Times, make sure you're subscribed. If you do so today, you'll get yourself one month free. Go online, check it out. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We will see you on Thursday. Take care.